Hey everyone, welcome back to the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Sam Burns. He's the chief strategist at Mill Street Research. Sam has over 20 years of experience as a market strategist, providing analysis and commentary to institutional investors globally. He founded Mill Street Research in 2016. In this episode, we talk about Sam's approach, which combines this top-down macro approach with the bottoms up. We also talk about why he is a little bit more bullish these days, given those objective indicators that he looks at on the markets and why he's seen better risk appetite in the next few months. We also zoom out and get the big picture macro view, his thoughts on the economy, inflation, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sam. I have to say he is so great at explaining things, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Sam Burns, Chief Strategist of Mill Street Research. Thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Oh, thank you, Julia. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. And I was hoping maybe we could kind of start um, with a bit of your own background. I know you've been in this business for um, many years, and I was hoping maybe you could just share a bit about your background, Sam, and also share a bit uh, about Mill Street Research. Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, I started doing uh, kind of, you know, market strategy, uh, you know, looking at you know markets and, you know, writing research uh, about, uh, you know, stocks, bonds, and different assets and uh, stock selection primarily. Uh, yeah, um, about 25 or more years ago, um, after I graduated from Vanderbilt uh, with an economics degree, I uh, did a few years uh, in Nashville and then went and got an MBA at the University of Texas and, uh, and then went to work at Ned Davis Research down in Florida, uh, where I, uh, you know, did a lot of work, you know, building models and things like that, uh, which I've continued to do over the last, you know, 20 years or so. And so um, I went from there to a few other firms up here in uh, Boston. And then about seven years ago now, I decided to uh, break out on my own and start Mill Street Research as an independent uh, research firm uh, where I could, you know, do more of what I wanted to do uh, without any kind of uh, bureaucracy and committees or uh, potential conflicts of interest from, uh, you know, uh, investment banking or trading or any of that kind of thing. So uh, so it's been nice to be able to uh, take all the work that I've done and all everything I've learned over the last 25 years or so and put it all together um, into a, uh, you know, a research product that uh, I can offer, you know, however I want. Uh, so it's a lot of flexibility and, uh, you, know, you know, fewer constraints than I've had uh, for most of my career. So it's, that's been, uh, it's been the upside. Uh, certainly being having to be in charge of everything is uh, is, is potentially the downside, but uh, it's worked out well so far and um, and I'm definitely uh, enjoying it. So, uh, so yeah, so it's been a, a, lot, a lot of years and um, a lot of, you know, watching markets and uh, trying to build objective indicators to help, you know, guide uh, what I do and what, what you know, advice I give to clients uh, rather than kind of being tossed around by the headlines every day. Uh, so that's a lot of what I focus on. I love that. Um, and like just hearing you say like having like the flexibility to do the things that you want to do or the research that you've always wanted to do. And I got to say, I'm a solo podcast host. Um, and so I get to have amazing conversations with folks like yourself, uh, that maybe I wasn't able to do, uh, when I was doing more like mainstream financial media. So it's really fun. And I love hearing that you kind of get that freedom and flexibility too. I want to, um, you know, pull out a few things in your, in your answer, just to explore a little bit more. 
Uh, what were some of the things you're saying like more flexibility or getting to do the things that you want to do? Help me understand, like, what were those things? Like, what is, what is kind of your approach or like the more of the research that you wanted to do? What was that? Right. So a lot of what I've um, done since I've been at Melser Research in particular has um, been trying to combine basically top-down analysis, kind of macroeconomic work, that kind of thing, and what I call bottom-up, meaning uh, data based on individual company uh, you know, analysis, kind of the uh, the earnings estimates, the you know, valuations, price trends of, of all the individual you know, companies globally, and trying to see where those two things align. Um, so if you're seeing something in the GDP data or inflation or retail sales or interest rates, and then if you can look kind of down underneath the hood and see uh, if analysts say are raising estimates in a particular sector or in a particular region um, to corroborate what you're seeing and kind of at the high level, then you usually get better signals uh, and kind of better information when those two things align. And uh, and so I think a lot of what uh, happens in, in Wall Street is that you get kind of bucketed into either being a macro person and it's all top down and kind of macro data or you're, uh, you know, say a quantitative analyst or a, a fundamental analyst and you're really looking only at the stock specific uh, individual company data. And it's it's hard to find between places that where you can really align those two and merge them and look at uh, individual companies and you know industries as as a you know aggregation level, then sectors and countries and regions, and then up to the level of kind of the, the major macro data, and uh, and that's a lot of what it's found harder to do um, when you're kind of you know forced to be sort of pigeonholed to some degree uh, at, at a typical you know Wall Street bank. Um, also, then of course, like I say. Uh, there's no uh, other, you know, parts of the of a firm, uh, whether it's investment banking or trading or anything else, to tell me, well, we don't want to say bad things about this company, or we want to be bullish all the time because that's what uh, is better for, you know, other parts of the business. Um, I can be bullish or bearish on anything I want, uh, anytime, and not have to worry about, you know, what the implications might be for some other part of a of a big bank or something. So uh, those are really the the key aspects of being independent that that appeal to me. And you know what? I got to say, I bet it appeals to the viewers too. like getting that, um, you know, that real take from you that you could be bullish or bearish or, um, you know, whatever you want. Uh, let's talk about the big picture. Usually that's where I kick things off um, on this show is the big picture, the macro view. Uh, we can kind of separate it to like, let's start with the economy, like, or what's your big picture macro view today? What are you thinking about? What are you kind of paying attention to? Yeah, I think it's definitely been a difficult time for macro analysis the last few years, just because of COVID and all the, the you know, after effects of that has made a lot of the data harder to interpret, and certainly a lot more volatile than it normally would be. So a lot of what, you know, historical cycles look like in, in macroeconomics don't apply as much right now just because everything is much more compressed in some sense and you know distorted by uh, both COVID itself and then the policy responses to COVID uh, that's ha that have happened over the last couple of years. So a lot of the uh, kind of, you know, you're, you're looking at a chart and you see the scale is, you know, the, the normal range before COVID, all those scales are kind of blown out in a lot of ways uh, that uh, all the, the peaks are higher and the troughs are lower. And it, it's much harder to get a, a clean read on what's going on. And, and even, you know, government, you know, data statisticians have had trouble kind of keeping up with it all. Um, and so I think it's important to look at a broad variety of data and not get too, you know, uh, hung up on any particular data series and certainly not the month to month data that we see, which is still very noisy 
and uh, and requires a lot of you know adjustments and interpretation. So my general overall picture is that uh, you know the economy is doing okay. Uh, you know we're probably in the process of slowing down from, from you know the very strong kind of stimulus-driven activity we saw the last couple of years. Um, I think you know the labor market is certainly a source of strength. Uh, things like the housing market is probably a source of weakness. Um, but I think overall we're probably in a kind of a slow growth environment right now. Uh, if you look at real activity, uh, if you look at kind of the nominal data, meaning including inflation, it still looks pretty strong. Uh, but inflation is probably coming down still from from higher levels. I think the last probably six months or so, it's it's definitely decelerated. And uh, so the, the really the big question now is how policy is going to respond to that, the Fed and to some degree fiscal policy. Um, so I think uh, I don't think we're we're heading for an imminent recession. I think a lot of people kind of came in late last year looking for a recession this year. I think that's at least being put off, if not, uh, you know, delayed until, you know, well, and in, maybe in the next year. Uh, but I think a lot depends on what the policy responses are going to be. Uh, so I think if the Fed can avoid you know, over tightening and the fiscal policy remains, you know, at least somewhat supportive, we could probably get through this year without a recession. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think um, things like energy prices are going to be helpful for that. They've come down quite a bit. Uh, and certainly they're helping Europe a lot. Um, I think if China can kind of get through its COVID issues and, uh, and, and, be, and be a little more stable, you know, that will help. There's a lot going on globally. Uh, but most of it is in a kind of a decelerating stage and certainly monetary policy, generally speaking, uh, in the U.S. and Europe is tightening. So that's going to kind of keep things uh, under under pressure. Um, so I think things are not going to be as bad as a lot of the, uh, the real bears and the negative kind of doomsayers have been saying. Um, and I think the market got priced for a lot of that late last year. So I think there's a, a difference between what was priced in and what's actually happening now in the sense that it's not great but it's not as bad as expected. And that's really the key thing for me is to see, you know, is it really uh, as bad as people were expecting it to be? And I think the answer is no. Yeah. That was, that was such a great way to like frame up this conversation and more, more things I want to like tug on a little bit too. You're right. Because there was like a lot of pessimism, like end of 2022, um, where it almost felt like the consensus was like that we're going to have a recession. And what I'm kind of hearing from you is that, that doesn't look imminent, or at least it could be put off or delayed until next year. So I guess my follow on is on the recession narrative, like, what do you think changed? Um, or how has that shifted? Like, we're, I guess, you know, they're only like two months into the year. Um, you know, what do you like, what was it that changed? I think to some degree, um, you know, people assume that the Fed's interest rate hikes that had happened, you know, all last year and are going to continue into this year would have a bigger impact on the economy than they have so far. Now, nothing to say that they couldn't suddenly have a sudden, you know, big impact and, and really slow things down more dramatically in, in the next few months. But right now, it looks like uh, people underestimated how resilient the economy could be to Fed interest rate hikes. And I think part of that is because the last time the Fed did something like this, was the 2005, 2006, 2007 period leading up to the great financial crisis. And then the impact was quite dramatic, of course. Um, but back then, the economy, I think, was more sensitive to interest rates. There was a lot more leverage in the system, both in you know, banks and the, the corporations. And there was and certainly in, in the housing market, the mortgage market. So a lot of those things that caused the economy to be more sensitive to rate hikes in the last cycle are less so now. And a lot of that is because of the fiscal stimulus, the fiscal support that was put into place after COVID, 
uh, that's kind of had a long, a long tail to it. Um, that even though that most of the fiscal stimulus stopped um, a year and a half ago, at least, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the stimulus checks and extra unemployment benefits and all those things have gone away for a while. A lot of that money that kind of got distributed is still floating around. It's still, consumers still have some of it. Uh, some, you know, local and state governments still have some of it to spend. And so I think there's been a, um, a fiscal support that's helped offset part of what the Fed has been doing in terms of raising rates. Um, so even though, you know, mortgage rates are way up from where they used to be and the housing market has slowed down, uh, other parts of the economy are holding up uh, better than people anticipated. I think it was kind of looking at the last cycle and saying, oh, well, the Fed's re hike rates very aggressively. The economy will then immediately fall apart. Well, you know, it might, but it hasn't yet. And I think uh, some of that is due to the the lagged effects of the, of the fiscal stimulus that are still there. And the fact that the fiscal policy is still, I would say, somewhat supportive, meaning that uh, there's still uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and some of these other things that have been passed for infrastructure and things like that more recently are still having some supportive effect to offset what the Fed has been doing. Um, and so it's not been a, um, you know, kind of uh, a combined effect of the Fed and fiscal policy both tightening at the same time. Uh, fiscal policy is tightened from where it was after COVID, but it's still not uh, extremely tight by most measures. Um, so I think that's been uh, a unexpected benefit uh, this cycle relative to past cycles that a lot of people have overlooked. Um, and I think um, the, you know, um, you know, the U.S. consumer it still has you know income to spend. The job market has been holding up quite well, and that's I think you know the key you know kind of core driver there of keeping consumer spending up, uh, where uh, you know people are not so far losing their jobs. They're, uh, they're still getting jobs. They're still getting wage increases, even if at a somewhat slower pace, and that's uh, you know the, the key driver of you know seventy percent of the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. So I think those are kind of the key reasons why the economy has held up so far and has enough momentum to carry us forward, at least through, say, mid-year, if not a little farther, uh, before you start to see further slowdowns. Yeah. Why Why do you think um, the labor market has been so tight? Like, why do, you, why do you think it's held up? And at the same time, like, and I don't, maybe it's the thing you have to separate, but you see like the headlines, like the first month of the year, we saw a lot of you know, big headlines in the financial media about like big tech layoffs. Um, like you could name a bunch of different uh, tech companies with layoffs. Like what, I'm just curious, like your thoughts on the labor market, like why it's remained so like resilient. Well, I mean, the way I kind of look at it, big picture is that if you think of, you know, the supply disruptions that happened due to COVID, most of the supply disruptions that were caused in the sort of the goods producing market, manufacturing and shipping things from China and all those kind of things, a lot of that has been resolved, um, but the, the supply component that has not been fully resolved is labor. Um, so in addition to, of course, losing a lot of people due to COVID directly, um, and then people who have you know, you know, become unable to work or unable to work the same jobs due to COVID, uh, you've also had a, a much more restricted immigration policy in the U.S., um, both due to policies that preceded COVID and due to COVID itself, you know, closing the borders and things like that. So a lot of the supply of labor that would normally have been there is not there and it's hard to replace quickly. Um, now, there's certainly things you could be done with immigration policy that would fix that, but uh, we're not doing them. So I think the labor supply issue is still kind of the key you know, limitation on, uh, on, on growth and, and, and on uh, sort of supply overall. And that's why you're seeing the inflation in services, for instance, holding up a lot higher than 
the inflation in goods prices where things have already really slowed down quite a bit. And so um, I think that's the, the supply demand dynamic in labor is still limited by the supply constraint. And the fact that there's still money to be spent uh, means that the demand supply uh, kind of balance is still somewhat tight in the labor market in the US for, for, for sure. And so I think that's keeping you know wages and, and job growth up. And there's still that kind of a longer term catch up from where we were you know, prior to COVID to where we are uh, now. We're sort of just now finally really catching up in terms of labor force participation and those kind of things, uh, getting people who had fallen out of the labor force back into it one way or another, either due to you know, uh, reduced exposure to disease or you know, people who had maybe decided to retire, trying to you know, come back into the labor force. Um, all those things are, you know, take a long time to play out um, without the kind of you know, support from either immigration or you know new uh, you know, demographics, you know, domestic you know uh, growth in the, in the labor force, um, and so that's I think keeping the labor force relatively tight, um, and therefore you're keeping uh, you know wage growth uh, up, and uh, I think businesses also are kind of uh, hoarding labor a little bit, meaning they've found it hard to hire, and so even if things slow down a bit in terms of business, they don't want to let people go too quickly for fear of not being able to, to find them again. Now, you mentioned a lot of the tech layoffs. I think those have been um, more specific to that particular kind of industry. A lot of those companies hired aggressively uh, in the last couple of years, you know, um, uh, to really to almost record degrees in some cases. And so I think there was just a lot of overhiring in some cases for some of those companies. And, you know, as it turns out, they get a lot of press, they get a lot of news, but they're not a big percentage of the overall U.S. labor force. Um, so the overall aggregate impact of some of those layoff announcements, as you've seen, is not huge in the context of a, of a large U.S. labor force. And a lot of those people are actually finding new jobs fairly quickly. So you're not seeing the uh, unemployment claims go up dramatically, even though you're seeing the layoffs. And so there's a lot of you know, indications that those people who are been, being laid off are finding new jobs, and they're not a big percentage of the overall labor force so far. So I think, generally speaking, um, those uh, it's more... Uh, you know, more headlines than, than, than real, than a real underlying, uh, trend of weakness. Yeah. Um, I want to also ask you about inflation because you did bring up inflation there, um, specifically around like services. We got the CPI, um, report or the latest one, like how, help me understand like how, and, and, and I, and I haven't gotten to read all your research, but like, how have you been thinking about inflation or how do you continue to think about it or what's kind of top of mind for you? As it comes, as it relates to inflation, right? Well, I think the you know the key things about inflation are one, you know, keep in mind that it's still hard to measure, and so you know one of the things that came out in the CPI report just uh, recently for January was a lot of the historical data was revised uh, because of the you know just the way they construct the, ind the indices and revised data based on either seasonal adjustments or uh, new data that's been you know, uh, accumulated since then, um, and new weighting schemes for the data. So you, know, you have to be careful about over-interpreting any of the data uh, too much. I think the general big picture trend is that inflation accelerated quite aggressively in kind of late 2021 and through mid-2022. So it's kind of June, July of, of 2022 is really where a lot of the data peaked in my view. Um, and since then, it's been a decelerating trend, not deflation, but dis disinflation, meaning a slower pace of inflation um, since kind of mid-year of, of last year. 
And uh, you can see that most directly in commodity markets, for instance, um, which is one of the things I, I look at because um, it's often very sensitive to you know global supply and demand. It's also the easiest thing to measure in a lot of ways. A lot of what goes into the CPI and other measures is you know, kind of extrapolated data or harder to measure accurately uh, over time. Whereas you know commodity prices like you know oil or you know metals or food, uh, the way they you know are in the commodity markets are pretty much the same thing you know month after month, year after year, and you can track them you know very accurately. So that that peaked to the middle of last year and has been eventually trending lower, um, and that uh, reflects both um, the effects of COVID and supply chains, but also the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the effects on oil prices, uh, which basically peaked in the middle of last year. So I think that tells you that the underlying you know kind of supply dynamics um, have improved for a lot of the goods producing side of the economy that demand that rely on commodities uh, as inputs. And that's why you've seen goods prices uh, really moderate quite a bit um, overall. And, uh, and so it's really only the services component uh, that uh, has really held up the inflation numbers so far. And uh, part of that in the CPI is, of course, to shelter the housing uh, kind of rent costs. Um, and there you have the uh, issue of things have basically moved faster than the CPI was designed to, to capture, um, that the shelter component of the CPI is lagged by construction, meaning it, it only moves, um, it only adjusts incrementally to changes in, in rent prices and, and home prices, uh, because they assume, of course, that most people don't move or re, re, you know, refinance or get a new lease every month. They only maybe once a year, would you say, you know, re-up your lease uh, for an apartment, for instance. And so that's the way the CPI is constructed, which makes sense in some ways, but because prices have moved so fast, rents are already falling or at least decelerating rapidly, home prices are falling, but that is not yet represented in the CPI data. Um, so it will be later this year, probably, uh, as the data kind of catches up. But there, that, that, that effect is having a big impact on what you see in the headline CPI data. Now, most economists and the Federal Reserve are aware of this and kind of can kind of adjust for that to some degree. Uh, so even if you take that out, there's still some, some pressure on services prices. Most of that is because of uh, the labor market. Uh, people are having to pay up for, for you know, workers at restaurants and hotels and things like that. And I think that's keeping the services side of the economy uh, and inflation there up, whereas you know, goods uh, have, to a large degree, uh, slowed down. I think that's the hard part for policy, is knowing which of those two things to pay attention to most. Um, so I think we're waiting for the services to kind of slow down before policy will, will ease. Uh, but I think it's it's a less of a problem right now. I think the general trend is 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 to, for deceleration. There's a lot of month to month noise, but I think that you're going to get more deceleration in inflation as you get closer to, to mid year, uh, and then probably by the second half of the year, the numbers will look a lot better. Yeah, I don't know if like if you all if you ever I don't know if you put this out there or, or, or write about it or whatnot, but um, do you think that we can get back to that two percent target? Is it realistic, um, or do you think that maybe we have to kind of rethink like what the target looks like or what I guess I'm like, I don't know. Um, what do you like, what do you think? Um, or what's kind of your expectation of where we could get to as it comes as it relates to inflation? Right, right. Yeah. And that's been a big topic, certainly uh, for, for Fed policy is to say, you know, what, what is really the, the goal and what's realistic, you know, over say the next three to six months versus say the next two years. 
And I think, yeah, I think eventually we will get back down to kind of close to that two, two and a half percent inflation rate uh, that we had, you know, for a long time pre-COVID. I think a lot of the long-term kind of secular drivers of inflation are still kind of in the in the downward, you know, trend. I mean, for for subdued inflation, I think demographics are a big part of that, and um, and technological productivity growth is still there. All those things are tend to be disinflationary, um, but I think it's going to still take a while to really get through all of the lag kind of knock-on effects from COVID and all the policy responses to it, and the way policymakers have you know rethought things a little bit. Um, so I think it'll take a while to get back to that real two percent sustained. Uh, I think probably by the end of 2023, we'll be a lot closer to that. Um, you know, maybe it's three percent um, or the high twos, um, but I think the Fed will probably be okay with that. I think they're probably going to allow a little more flexibility once we get down into you know below four percent certainly, and maybe below three and a half. They'll uh, figure that that's probably you know close enough uh, for the time being. Uh, so I think um, you know the Fed is probably not going to officially change their you know two percent or two and a half percent target um, because I think just from a you know credibility standpoint they don't want to be seen as moving the goalposts. But I think realistically, um, you know, over the next say you know twelve to eighteen months, uh, that you know a slightly higher rate of inflation is going to be acceptable uh, for a lot of people. Um, but I think a lot depends on, on what fiscal policy winds up doing. Um, I think if fiscal policy becomes significantly tighter, uh, if, you know, basically if the fiscal U.S. Treasury deficit goes down a lot more, um, that would put further downward pressure on inflation um, and probably might get us there somewhat quicker. Uh, I think that would probably be negative for the economy overall, but I think that would push inflation lower. I think the Fed is, is really trying to wage a war of, of uh, you know, kind of perception uh, right now, I think a lot of what they've done is probably, you know, sufficient. Um, you know, rates near five percent is probably enough to bring inflation down over the next say six to twelve months. It's just a question of um, how fast do you need to see the progress, or before you you know raise rates further, tighten further. I think that's really the question for investors' minds: is uh, you know how is the what is the Fed's response going to be to the inflation data uh, that we see over the next few months? Just because it is going to be a bumpy road back down to kind of that two percent level. Yeah. Um, just another quick follow on and, um, us taking notes too, and it's so helpful and I'm so grateful to have you on Sam, because this is really interesting stuff. I want to hear a bit more. You just mentioned about like pushing down the deficit and the impact on inflation. Can you just explain that real quick for me? Cause I, and I'm sorry, like I kind of missed, um, the, the essence of it. I just want to hear a little bit more. Sure. Sure. So I think, you know, a lot of people, certainly in the markets, it really focused on the Fed and interest rates and their balance sheet and all these kind of monetary policy variables um, and, you know, haven't maybe focused enough on the fiscal side of the equation. There's sort of, you know, two big drivers in terms of policy uh, that really affect, you know, a lot of what's going on in the markets and the economy. And the fiscal side, um, you know, has had a huge impact, certainly post-COVID, um, you know, comparable to what happened, you know, during World War II, you know, arguably. Now, that's really, you know, started to fade a lot. But is still there, and you know I think a lot of people when they think about what drives inflation, um, you know there's sort of people think about printing money and kind of you know the, the money generation process and kind of where does that come from, and they tend to think of the Federal Reserve and the bank banking system as being the the driver of that, um, and they, they are in a sense, but the real kind of money printing comes from the the Treasury, the U.S. federal government, um, in the form of deficit spending essentially 
whatever is spent by the, the federal government that is not taxed away, um, you know, returned to them in the form of taxes, which is essentially the deficit, um, is the amount of money being put into the economy on a, on a you know year to year basis. And now how it gets spent and where it goes and how whether it causes inflation or not can be a little more complicated. But at, at a high level, that's kind of what drives um, you know the measure of fiscal policy that I tend to look at at, the, at a high level. And so uh, if you think the federal budget will you know kind of stay more or less where it is, kind of a you know maybe a three to five percent. Uh, you know, of GDP being the size of the deficit, you know, proportional to, to GDP, um, that would probably be, you know, in line with with history and probably, you know, be somewhat supportive for the economy and keep inflation at a moderate rate. Um, if you thought fiscal policy was going to be much tighter than that, meaning we're going to go for a much lower deficit uh, relative to GDP, which, you know, certainly given the split Congress now could happen, um, that would mean a more uh, kind of tighter contractionary fiscal policy that would probably put more downward pressure on overall growth and on inflation. And that would then kind of combine with the tighter monetary policy to really, you know, kind of tighten policy and reduce inflation, you know, more, more quickly. Um, and so I think uh, it's important to keep in mind what is fiscal policy doing, you know, how, you know, what, how big is the deficit essentially relative to GDP and then to some degree, where is that money getting spent? How is it being you know, allocated across the economy or globally? Um, you know, we saw that the biggest direct effects after COVID when the government, you know, the treasury sent checks to everybody directly. Uh, you just showed up in your bank account. You didn't have to do anything um, or unemployment benefits that were you know, in increased and extended. Um, that was a very direct uh, you know, way of, of, of implementing fiscal policy that was really not done much before. Um, we, we, we've kind of, a lot of that has gone away, but there are still, you know, forms of, of stimulus that can be used. And again, the infrastructure spending or, you know, other kind of policies that have been put in place, those are all going to have impacts on the economy, on inflation over the next few years. Um, but, you know, once they get passed and they kind of, you know, the news, they go out of the headlines, then people kind of go back to worrying about the Fed, which is more of a day-to-day -day thing that you can see in the markets. And I think it's important to keep in mind kind of on the longer term basis, what is fiscal policy doing? I think that uh, you know, looking at something like the debt to, or deficit to GDP ratio as kind of a rough proxy is a good way to track that. That's something that I, I talk about in my research periodically, is to keep that fiscal side of things in mind. It doesn't have a day-to-day -day impact, um, but it does have a kind of an intermediate-term impact that's uh, at least as important as, as monetary policy. Mm -hmm. When you bring up the deficit, it also makes me think of like um, the debt and the debt situation in the U.S. I don't know if that's something you think about. Or, or focus on either, and um, and but do you have any thoughts there? Or is it something that comes up in your research ever? Um, we do get questions about it periodically, and certainly right now, uh, the debt ceiling debate in Congress is uh, you know big big news. Uh, you know this has happened before, of course, and you know the 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 normal uh, kind of way it plays out is that after some theatrics and uh, potentially some. Uh, you know, concessions in, in, in a budget or something, um, you know, the debt ceiling gets raised and things kind of go back to normal. Um, I think most economists would agree that the debt ceiling itself as a concept is sort of silly um, in the sense that once uh, appropriations are made and the budget is, con is constructed and money is spent uh, in the form of, you know, the, the deficit and the, you know, the difference between taxes and, and revenues uh, and spending, 
um, then a debt ceiling is sort of a doesn't doesn't really make sense. Um, but I think that the, the idea is that um, you know it, it may produce some you know reduction in spending or increase in taxes or some other way of uh, reducing future spending. Uh, and that's really going to be the, the impact that, that I'm looking for. Um, you know, the level of the debt itself, uh, whatever, the, however many trillions it might be, is less relevant um, overall. Uh, it can have some impact um, in the sense of, you know, interest expense and how, you know, money gets allocated in the economy, uh, whether it's going more to savers or to consumers um, and kind of the, the way, you know, you know it, it affects the, the relative proportions uh, you know, of income from interest or dividends or uh, or, or, or you know, wage income, things like that. But overall, um, the debt itself, I don't think is is a real problem. And I think as long as the deficits that are are produced, you know, by the you know at the fiscal level uh, every year are in that kind of you know three to five percent of GDP range, I think that's um, you know probably that's historically normal and probably fine and probably what we, we should be aiming for. Uh, I think a balanced budget in the sense of zero deficit would be uh, detrimental. I think that would be quite contractionary uh, because that would mean that the, you know, if the economy grows, there's no extra money to support it. Um, and so I think that's uh, there should be a certain level of, of deficit, generally speaking, uh, at the federal level um, to in order to accommodate natural growth in the economy, whether from population growth or you know, productivity growth or whatever it might be. Um, so I think it's you know on a long-term basis, that's easy to forget. Um, but the, the federal the federal government, the Treasury needs to produce more money for the economy every year to keep up with natural underlying real growth. Uh, otherwise, you get deflation, um, which you probably don't want either. Yeah. So I think the, the important thing is to kind of watch the deficit to GDP ratio, that kind of number. The overall debt level is less important. And certainly the debt ceiling is really a, a political game uh, that hopefully will be worked out without having government shutdowns and kind of the damage to the economy that can happen when you get you know real disruptions to um the treasury market or to uh to you know the government itself got it um i do want to shift because we've, we've talked a lot about the economy but i, I want to talk about the markets and maybe let's do the big picture like what is your overall assessment of the markets yeah so um i've actually been recently you know more bullish on equities uh, and sort of risk assets in general than i've been in at least a year or more um, you know, the indicators, you know, I mentioned, you know, how I uh, try to rely as much as possible on objective, you know, quantitative indicators. And that's true both for uh, asset allocation, kind of market timing kind of things, as well as uh, stock selection. And a lot of what I'm seeing right now shows that uh, risk appetite in markets is really improving quite a bit from where it was last year, certainly late last year. And that's been, I think, the key trend in markets is that um, the you know, kind of the average investor and certainly a lot of institutions that I talked to were pretty pessimistic, you know, kind of October, November last year. Uh, most of them expected recession. Most of them expected, you know, a lot of Fed tightening and that for that to have a really negative impact on earnings. A lot of people were expecting the Q4 earnings reports that have been coming out to be much worse than they, they were. They weren't great, but they were okay. And so I think the fact that things are not as bad as expected um, is producing a lot of the kind of better risk appetite that we're seeing in markets now. And I do think we are getting closer to the end of the Fed's tightening cycle. And historically, that's been a, a better time to be exposed to, to equities and to, to risk assets in general, um, that even though we might have another couple of rate hikes to go, um, we're, you know, we're much closer to the end than, than to the beginning. 
and um, and the economy has held up relatively well uh, in the face of that. So uh, so I would say you know that it, you know being a little more bullish in equities is kind of where I am now. Uh, I probably would not be in favor of bonds. I think uh, long-term bonds of you know they priced in a lot of the potential good news from the Fed in the form of lower rates maybe next year. Um, and so I think uh, some mixture of, of equities and a bit of cash uh, is probably the place to be. And that, uh, you know, it's probably okay to look at some of the cyclical areas of, of the equity market. Uh, I think earnings are going to be okay. They're not going to be great, but I think okay is really, again, better than what the consensus was. Um, and I think that, um, a lot of what's happening is that there's been a compression in profit margins, but not top line revenues and sales. And so I think once that kind of that process uh, normalizes or adjusts, uh, profit margins were very high, you know, last year and probably due to correct. They've done a lot of correcting already and probably do a little more. But I think the underlying drivers there are probably going to stabilize. And we're starting to already see that a little bit in the earnings estimates. So I think overall, I'm, I'm more positive on equities and on risk assets than I've been for a little while. That's certainly what I've been uh, writing in my research to uh, institutional clients. Yeah. So more bullish. Um, you mentioned like cyclical areas um, are interesting to you. Like, is it overall equities that you're bullish on or is it just specific areas? Like what is kind of, what what are the opportunities that are interesting to you or make sense to you in this environment? Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm generally bullish on, on equities, uh, at least for the next few months. I tend to think, take things on kind of a rolling, you know, three month or so basis and kind of reevaluate continuously as we go along. But I think, um, yeah, I think some of the uh, areas like consumer discretionary or industrials um, are areas that are, you know, looking relatively better uh, now. And even some of the areas within, say, technology uh, that had been under a lot of pressure, uh, certainly on, on a relative return basis in, in the equity market, and uh, certainly some of the mega cap techs where had the earnings had been under a lot of pressure, the earnings estimates have been cut pretty dramatically for some of them. That's starting to uh, to kind of that headwind is 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 weakening, I would say. Um, and so I think we're seeing uh, things that had been very negative turning less negative, and some of the things that maybe had been you know more positive getting a little bit more positive. And so uh, in markets, you know, certainly in my view, that's really the key is kind of those those turns from you know if it's very bad to being less bad. Or maybe you know, improving. That's the, the direction is what matters rather than kind of the level. And uh, I think those inflection points are what we're seeing right now, both in terms of the fundamentals um, that the economic data is less bad than expected, and certainly even things like the economic surprise indices. Uh, Citigroup publishes these uh, economic surprise indices that track whether the macroeconomic data is better or worse than what the economists expected uh, on on a, on a on rolling basis. Um, and so those have been positive recently. So I think earnings estimates are going to be a little bit better than, you know, than they had been. I think macroeconomic day is a little bit better than it had been. And that's enough to boost, you know, stock prices, which is what we've seen you know, this year so far, and to uh, kind of bring risk appetite back from the very low pessimistic levels it was at, um, you know, late last year. And I think that could go on for a while. Those kind of sentiment swings tend to play out over, you know, a period of months. They're not short-term, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week things. So from, coming from a very low level of optimism, we're getting back to sort of more, maybe more neutral levels now and could probably go a little bit higher in terms of investor sentiment before we'd run into a question of, well, are people too bullish now? And that, I think we're, we're, not, we're not there yet. Yeah. So I think, you know, while we're 
you know, while we're in the process of improving, you want to kind of stay on that bullish side and uh, and look for areas um, like say like industrials or consumer discretionary um, and some of the technology areas that had been under pressure and are looking better now. That makes sense. Um, so you you your focus like you do a few months like a you, I think you mentioned like three months like that's when you kind of make your when you put together your outlooks it's like a just a few months out I think it's important to distinguish. That's right. That's right. I think you know, trying to look out, you know, a year or two ahead of time and, and make big, bold bets on that is very difficult. Um, a lot can happen, you know, certainly even in six months or, or a year, as we've seen. And so I think uh, and having objective indicators that kind of constantly update and tell you, you know, what's happening now. And therefore, what does that tell you about the next, say, you know, one month, three months, maybe six months? You know, that's probably as far as a lot of these indicators can really be relied on to to tell you. And again, you know, I'm talking to professional investors who have to manage money against a benchmark and are judged for it on, say, a quarterly basis. You know, most of them get, you know, quarterly performance reports and or, or certainly every six months. And they have to show, you know, what they're doing on a, on a short term basis. Um, and if they don't do well, if they underperform, then, you know, investors will take money away from them. And so there's certainly a kind of, you know, uh, time frame that a lot of the clients look at from, you know, quarter to quarter, or, you know, over the course of say six months, uh, and certainly, you know, up to a year that they have to focus on in terms of performance. If you can say, oh, well, I'm a long-term investor and I'm thinking about five years from now, that's maybe great, but people might take their money away from you uh, within a year if your performance lags. And so you kind of have to be at least somewhat focused on, you know, the next say six months or so. Um, and so I think, keeping those uh, timeframes in mind and trying to be objective about it and trying to dynamically adapt to what's going on is more important than sort of making a big, bold projection at the beginning of the year and then never changing it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, the trap, it's easy to fall into. It, it's, you know, it sounds better to say, well, I've, you know, I, I'm bullish for the next two years or I'm bearish, but I think you got to adapt to what's happening. And again, try to rely on time-tested objective indicators rather than what's in the headlines. Yeah, um, the ability to be dynamic and to adapt. Um, you mentioned you keep mentioning these indicators, like these kind of objective indicators. And I don't I don't want you to have to give away like all your secrets or your methodology <laughs> or whatever. Is there like, an, okay, maybe the question is like, what's a really interesting indicator to you that you pay attention to or signaling something, uh, or maybe you want to reveal more, but uh, maybe I could kind of phrase it that way. Cause I'm, I am curious, like what are the indicators or what's an interesting one to you? Sure, sure. So um, when I'm looking at indicators for sort of market timing, asset allocation, you know, how risk risk on or risk off do I want to be? Um, I kind of think of there's there's two types of indicators. One are the uh, indicators directly tied to the equity market itself. You know, basically our stock price is going up or down, and what is volatility doing? Is it higher, you know, rising or falling, um, and things like that. And what kinds of stocks are people buying? So that you know, are they buying the risky stocks, the high volatility, you know, uh, go-go stocks, or are they buying more defensive, conservative stocks? And those have been improving. Uh, everyone kind of can kind of look at the S and P 500 or the Nasdaq or any of the major indices and see that well, yeah, they've generally been rising this year, and it's been more of the uh, you know the 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 growth or the riskier stocks that have been leading. So that's a good sign. But most people are, are used to looking at that, and that's that's pretty pretty common. Um, the other kind of side of it, which is potentially more interesting, are the non-equity indicators uh, that corroborate what you see or sometimes don't. Um, so there I'm looking at uh, credit, 
So, you know, credit spreads, meaning the difference between what corporate bonds yield and what treasuries yield as a measure of how much uh, credit risk people think there is, whether companies will be able to pay off their debts and, you know, uh, what the defaults might be, um, those kind of things um, that are uh, tied to the economy and tied to earnings, but are not directly related to equities you know, themselves. Um, there we've seen been seeing improvement. Uh, again, toward the end of last year, credit spreads have been widening, meaning people were demanding higher yields on corporate debt um, than they were on treasuries to compensate for the risk that we go into recession this year and companies would have to you know, uh, have trouble paying their debts, particularly the lower rated ones. And we're not seeing that now. We're seeing uh, investors being willing to take somewhat lower yields on corporate debt. And so that kind of tells you that um, we're not in a situation where people are worried about corporate balance sheets and, and companies not being able to pay off their loans. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is uh, is uh, metals prices. Uh, so industrial metals like copper or aluminum or zinc or those kind of things that are made, they're used in, in, in you know, housing or uh, you know auto building, uh, anything that's kind of an industrial goods producing thing, and then and they're global. Um, so again, not just the U.S., but China or Europe or you know emerging markets. All those um, things are tied into the global uh, commodity prices and particularly industrial metals. So that's a much more sensitive indicator of what's going on globally and tends to track um, what people's perceptions are of particularly in China and anything that's related to manufacturing uh, and housing. And so those prices have been doing a bit better recently. So you've seen an uptick in copper prices and things like that. Um, so um, that's another way to say, okay, are global growth expectations improving or weakening? And uh, and so that's another way to look at it, not just from the standpoint of equities directly, but from a kind of a cross asset standpoint. And so most of those metrics are uh, favorable now, more favorable than they've been the way I look at them. Again, they're looking more at if they were negative and they're less negative, or they were slightly positive and now they're more positive, that kind of thing, that kind of second derivative, you know, rate of change is really what they're focused on. And that's that's kind of what I'm seeing uh, improve recently. And that's why my model is more bullish and why, therefore, I'm following along and getting more bullish. Yeah. And it was just so interesting to like, when you, you, when you unpack it, almost... So different like components and uh, it almost sounds like putting together like a bit of a puzzle too. I mean, that's just kind of like my view of like, it's so interesting to hear like what you look at. It, it's cool because it, there, there's a lot that goes into it as well. Um, I want to hear your thoughts because you did bring up, okay, so like why you explain like why you're a bit more bullish on equities right now. I want to hear your thoughts on bonds, um, your thoughts there how you feel about like, I mean, bonds is huge. Like there's so many different facets of it, but like, let's kind of let's, like, let's start with like big picture um, on bonds. Yeah, I think bonds, um, I mean, I guess to say up front, um, I've been underweight bonds in my kind of asset allocation recommendations. Meaning if if normally you would hold say, you know, 30% of your portfolio in, in bonds uh, or 40% or something like that, I would be less than that. Um, now, not to say you wouldn't own any bonds, but just that bonds are less attractive now than probably they would be under normal circumstances on average. And I think a lot of that comes down to the big the big thing in the, in the bond market right now is the yield curve being heavily inverted, uh, meaning that the long-term bond yields are lower than short-term uh, yields. So uh, you can get more on holding a, say, a, you know, a three-month or a one-year treasury bill than you can on owning a 10-year treasury note. Um, and I think that reflects um, a lot of what people expect for Fed policy. So the short-term interest rates tend to follow Fed policy much more closely, of course, 
um, whereas long-term yields can move around more. And they're assuming that the Fed will stop hiking rates sometime this year, not sure when, but sometime this year, and then start to cut again, either late this year or next year, as the economy slows down, inflation comes down. And so they're already pricing in a fair amount of that effect. If the treasury yield, 10-year treasury yield is around, I think, 3.8% or so today, and the federal funds rate is you know, 4.75% and probably going to go to 5% next month, um, you're, you're giving up a significant amount of interest income by owning a 10-year bond than owning a you know, one-year or two-year bond um, in anticipation that the rates will come down later. So the risk there is that rates don't come down as fast as, as they, people think. And then you've already kind of, you've taken the, you know, the lower yield and there's not much more to get from that in the sense of uh, yields going down further and giving you a capital gain on your bond holding. So uh, I think the inverted yield curve makes it more difficult to own long-term bonds now uh, relative to say short-term you know, bonds or, or cash. And so you have to have a very, very strong view that inflation and interest rates and policy rates are going to go down fairly quickly, more quickly than the market already anticipates in order to make bonds attractive to own, say, over the next, you know, again, three months, six months, or a year or so. Um, and so, you know, if, you, if you're going to hold a bond to maturity and you're happy with the yield, fine, then it doesn't really matter much. You can just, you know, do that by itself. When you're thinking about asset allocation, you know, are stocks going to give you a better return than bonds or is cash going to give you a better return than long-term bonds? I think the relative uh, kind of asset allocation standpoint looks better for for equities, like I say, but better for shorter term uh, duration assets and bonds than for longer term. Um, because like I say, a lot of the good news is already kind of in the long end of the bond market right now. And therefore there's not a lot of upside there uh, from my standpoint. So it's not a lot of upside. Is it, it's not like problematic when people like don't want, or maybe it's, a, I don't know if that's even a good question, but it's not like a problem if people like don't want to own bonds right now, right? Or like the longer term bonds. It's not like a big deal, is it? No, no. I think there's still, you know, kind of structural demand for for fixed income. Uh, I think, you know, the, the the demographics are people are still getting older um, and people still want, you know, income in their portfolios. And uh, certainly now you can get more yield from treasuries and most fixed income than you could for much of the last, say, 15 years. Um, so, you know, that's, I guess, good in the sense of if you're looking for, for income, it's, it's easier to find now, but, um, it's more, again, that kind of just a relative, uh, allocation view within a, a fixed income portfolio or within an overall, um, you know, stocks and bond portfolio, you know, kind of, which do you want to give more emphasis to, uh, there always gonna, is going to be demand for, for, for bonds. And I think, um, you know, the, the Fed certainly can, can have a lot of impact on that, um, with, you know, their, their policies and, uh, so I think there's there's no danger that people won't want treasury bonds or, or, or any bonds. It's just a matter of exactly what yield you're going to require and and you know kind of how you feel about inflation, uh, you know, kind of potentially eating up some of the you know the real value of those 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 income payments that you're going to be getting. If you think inflation is going to be higher than 3.8 percent, uh, wherever the treasury ten-year treasury is paying you, then you know it's going to look unattractive uh, to you. If you think inflation will be much lower than that, then it will look pretty good. So like I say, a lot depends on what you think about inflation to say whether you think bonds are appealing right now. Um, I don't necessarily think inflation is going to be super high. I just think that a lot of the good news is probably in it for now, you know, again, on a three to six month view. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense. And the keyword too is relative too. Is that yeah? Okay. Very much. Um, yeah. This is why it's so great to have you on. Um, because look, I am definitely not an expert. I get the privilege to like talk to really incredibly smart folks like yourself and um, learn and help my audience learn as well. Um, so that's just awesome to. Okay. Uh, another question for you, because you brought up the inverted yield curve. I had a guest on recently. Um, it was the episode with Michael Howell, who's known for, um, you know, he's an expert in all things liquidity. And he made a case on the show that it's a flaky predictor. Um, okay. A flaky predictor of a recession. Like some folks think like um, yield curves, when they invert, when the yield curve inverts historically, like it precedes a recession. What are your thoughts on the yield curve? And do you have any, or do you pay attention to that or like think about that? Or is that a, is it an indicator you ever look at? Um, does it, what, what are your thoughts there? Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, indicators of recessions that are, you know, widely, you know, used and, and followed, uh, the yield curve is probably top of the list. Um, and, and, and it is true, you know, in many historical cases, an inverted yield curve did precede a lot of the recessions that we've seen historically. And the message from an inverted yield curve usually is that the Federal Reserve, the policymakers are over-tightening. They've gone too far with short-term interest rates and they've slowed the economy too much. And that's what's gonna cause a recession and lower inflation and therefore lower interest rates in the future that the long-term bond yields are anticipating. Now, the question this cycle is, um, I guess partly the kind of post-COVID volatility that we've seen, um, that this is an unusual cycle compared to all the past cycles. Um, and so it's hard to interpret yield curves or a lot of other economic data, uh, like I said earlier, you know, in the light that you would normally look at it historically. Um, the other is that, um, you know, like I say, there's monetary policy. And so even if you think monetary policy might be too tight, there's fiscal policy on the other side. And so um, a lot of what's happened in the past is that fiscal policy did not counteract monetary policy and keep kind of, you know, a balance in terms of the economy. Um, if that is not the case this cycle, meaning if fiscal policy does, you know, remain relatively supportive, that can par at least partially neutralize the effects of the yield curve being inverted. Um, and, you know, the other thing is just, you know, the dynamics of the way the markets work and the fact that the Fed is doing more uh, balance sheet activity now since 2008 than it did in the past, uh, meaning it, it's buying long-term bonds, which it never used to do, and trying to you know really manage um, the you know it's the number of bonds it owns, but the type of bonds it owns as well, and that has more effect on you know, the yield curve and the relative uh, dynamics within the the Treasury market than was the case prior to 2008. So a lot of the history of the yield curve is based on uh, times when the Fed was not doing what it's doing now, or what it's been doing last since 2008. Um, so it's harder to interpret it um, the same way because monetary policy is being done differently now. It used to be that you know, reserves in the banking system were kept at a low level and the Fed would use you know, interest rate policy to adjust reserves much more dramatically and really didn't do much in the long end of the yield curve and didn't, didn't buy 10-year treasuries. Um, and certainly didn't buy mortgage-backed securities and things like that. Now they do, and that has knock-on effects for how the yield curve behaves. So I think there's a lot of things that are different this cycle, both in terms of COVID and all the knock-on effects from that, and also the way the Fed drives policy. And I think that's had an effect on the yield curve that may not mean we're going into recession. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that 
the yield curve may predict a recession, but it doesn't, it's not real good about when. I mean, it might be three months from now, it might be 18 months from now. Uh, there's a wide range uh, historically in terms of when the economy actually starts to really go into recession based on a yield curve signal. And, and even then, you know, which yield curve signal are you using? There's a lot of different ways to measure the yield curve. Um, and so, and not all of them have given the same message recently. So, um, so I'm, I'm certainly aware of it and, and looking at it and it does inform my relative bond allocation decision, like we we're talking about a minute ago, but it doesn't necessarily tell me, oh, we must be going into recession right now. Um, because I think there are a lot of other factors that play into that, that you don't want to rely on that one single indicator. Because again, there's a lot of play in the timing of it. And there's a lot of things that are different, you know, the way the Fed operates now than, than in the past. Yeah. Well, Sam, I have to say, I've really enjoyed um, listening to you and learning from you. And I'm really grateful that you came on the show. And I want to give you just a couple minutes, um, you know, for any parting thoughts, if there's something that we didn't bring up in the conversation uh, that we should have, or just a thought that you might want to share with the audience and also let folks know where they can find you, whether it's um, following you on social media or, you know, finding um, more information about your firm or the research that you put out. So just take the next couple of minutes uh, to, to do those things. Oh, sure. No, and I, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, the main thing from my research standpoint is to look at um, a lot of data and a lot of indicators and look for where they line up. And that's kind of what I try to do. And so people who you know follow me on um, you know on Twitter or on LinkedIn, where I try to post fairly frequently to give you know excerpts and kind of uh, highlights from uh, what I what I publish for institutions, um, is is to look for a lot of different indicators and look for where they where they align. Um, and so if you go to you know millstreetresearch.com, you can see uh, samples of all the research that I produce um, there, where you can you can read about both the macro kind of portfolio strategy economic work. And also the more stock selection, uh, industry sector kind of work that I do, uh, based more on earnings estimate revisions, price trends, and valuations uh, for stocks and industries and things like that. So I would say, you know, if you're interested in either of those two things, uh, you might you might want to have a look. Uh, I've recently started publishing a new uh, report uh, that's more for the uh, kind of a general audience for individual investors or maybe investment advisors who want to get a better look at the work. It's called the Weekly Roundup. It's basically uh, uh, kind of a carve out. Of what my asset allocation, uh, economic, you know, views and uh, and some stock selection um, that are uh, carved out from the bigger institutional research platform that I provide um, to uh, institutional investors, um, and so you can go to the website and find a way to subscribe to that. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you want to get a closer look at it, uh, that's probably the, what I would do. But yeah, MillStreetResearch.com, uh, uh, Mill Street Research on Twitter and on LinkedIn uh, are all ways that you can see. Uh, kind of what I'm, you know, doing what I'm saying, and uh, certainly you can uh, find the contact form or uh, you know info at millstreetresearch.com if you want to email us and uh, you know, get more information. Well, Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research, really appreciate you taking the time and being so generous with your thoughts and your ideas. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.